When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. In 1991, Alex Kotlowitz, then a reporter for the Wall Street Journal, released a book called There Are No Children Here, and it was a searing account of life in the housing projects of Chicago that became a international bestseller and introduced people to the horror that children in these projects faced. Alex has stayed engaged on these issues for three decades, and now he's released another book, equally powerful, called An American Summer, Love and Death in Chicago, a a deeply impactful account of crime and violence uh, in my hometown. I sat down with Alex recently at the Institute of Politics to talk about this book and why these issues have become his passion. Alex Kotlowitz, always great to see you. I, I realized um, when I was um, going through your your biography that um, we, we grew up in roughly the same place at roughly the same time. You're a New Yorker. I am. Upper West Side, right? And you're from Stuyvesant Town. Stuyvesant yeah, Town, yeah, yeah. 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 No, I... And your folks had interesting stories. I mean, your, your, your dad and... Uh, as like a intriguing yeah, no, history, uh, right, the war and right. so no, on. In some ways, I come by my work honestly. You know, so my dad was, you know, well, he, you know, he was a magazine editor for a number of years. He was at Harper's during the heyday under Willie Morris when they had Haberstam and Norman Mailer and Gay Talese writing for them. Um, and then he went on and spent public much of his television. In public television. Started yeah. the McNeil Lair Report. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, and then uh, and he was a writer. That's really what his love was. So he, we, he'd spend weekends. We lived in a well, sure, like you, a reasonably small New York apartment. So. On weekends, he would write, and my brother and I had to. We were gone. I played basketball all weekend. That was my escape. But um, but he wrote novels. But his his best book, which you alluded to, is this book before their time about his experience in World War II, which was just tragic. Yeah, uh, tell me about that. Yeah, he well, was. First of all, where did the Kotlowitzes come from? So uh, well, so my both my parents are from Baltimore. My uh, but my grandfather was from Poland, uh, um, and he was a, a cantor. Oh, is that right? Yeah, yeah. And he had a a shul and a synagogue in Baltimore that he worked at. And um, but my dad went off to war, and he was it was towards the end of the war, and he was in France, and his platoon uh, they were going over a ridge, and he they were diamond shaped, and he was at the end of the diamond. They got uh, ambushed by the Germans, and uh, everybody in the platoon was killed except for my father, and he played had to play dead all day. And was ultimately rescued by the Red Cross. Um, but it, his book is really about c- kind of going crazy in the aftermath of that. You know, the sort of, uh, you know, he, he was unable, I think, to. In fact, I, I mean, I, I knew that there was some story about the war, but um, he never talked about it. Yeah. And then when he was in his late 60s, he sat down and 
put pen to paper and started looking up actually some of the men he had uh, uh, trained with and knew from the service and began going through the records and began piecing together that that day. Uh, and was it cathartic for him? Yeah, I think it was really cathartic. Um, it's funny, I hear this now from Vietnam veterans who are in their 60s and 70s. In some ways, it's when everything begins to come back because, you know, suddenly they stop working and mm-hmm. they have all this time. And it, for some, it can be really difficult and traumatic. And I think for others, well, I, my dad had this sort of capacity to write it. And I think there's something cathartic about telling your story. But when you say he went crazy, um, just the just the burden of having su- the survivor yeah, when was, all your when all your buddies are gone. Yeah, there's all this guilt and this sense of what could I have done differently and why me, you know. And the worst of it is that the army after this incident, they assigned him to um, go through. Um, the, they weren't body bags, the bags of all the belongings of soldiers who'd been killed. And that was his job, oh, was working my. in the warehouse. So it was, you know, he was, so it just made it even doubly difficult for him. You had an exchange of letters with him uh, about all of this. This Did this predate his book? It did. It predated quite a bit. So actually, yeah, we we did an exchange of letters in the New York Times Magazine. Yeah. Uh, it was really fun to do. and uh, And it was just really about... Our relationship about we had a kind of I think growing up a really difficult relationship and it wasn't um, why um, <laughs> I mean I, I'm, I'm not asking in an accusatory way yeah. I had some difficult relationships yeah, my, as well you know but. my dad was uh, he was idiosyncratic in his own way and uh, he liked his space he was a bit he was judgmental um, um, and he wasn't terribly available in some ways. Um, but it was interesting. Um, I can tell you, like, the moment it turned was after I wrote There Are No Children Here. And I think, one, he took a great deal of pride in the fact that— As he I, should. Yeah. And um, But Pharaoh, the younger boy in the book, who was very close to our family, we went back to visit once. And my dad was—he never hugged. I mean, it was just—and I remember we got off the train to—we were visiting them in upstate New York, and he just gave Pharaoh this big hug. And in I knew then tunnel. that it was sort of—and that kind of— um, uh, cross this line. And so we became actually really close. I mean, as in, as an adult, I talk about work and family and, uh, that's great. Yeah. So. Um, you, you said your grandfather was a canner. Was your home a particularly religious? Home? Not at all. My dad ran from it. So it, we were not religious. I mean, I was bar mitzvahed, but mm-hmm. we were not religious at all. So. And and did you go to public schools? In, I went to York? public schools up through elementary school and then went through private, private school for high school. Yeah. And so. you went to Wesleyan University, but you didn't go there to be a writer. You went there to be a biologist. Right. I thought I was right. I, that's what I wanted to do. That was my passion. And uh, then I took organic chemistry and realized that I was- <laughs> You don't know how many times this comes up in these conversations. <laughs> People who had all these intentions. I want, I was going to be a scientist. I was going to be a doctor. I was going to- And then organic chemistry came Oh, my came God. Up. I thought, I am not cut out for this. So uh, I actually ended up, I, I ended up dropping out for a while because it was uh, so uh, disorienting. And you went to Atlanta. Yeah, I did. I was actually going down to New Orleans. I was going to just go work as a waiter. I, I went through Atlanta. I can't remember why, but I when I went through Atlanta, I met this uh, Episcopalian minister, white man, who had moved to the south side of Atlanta and started the settlement house, Emmaus House. Um, 
And it was he was really a community organizer. They would organize a welfare rights organization, a tenants organization, and I ended up staying. And uh, where'd you meet the guy? I, you know, I met him on my way down to New Orleans. I can't remember. There must have been some connection, but I can't for the life of me remember why I stopped when I was in Atlanta to talk with him. And but, how did that year? change you you know it was really it was transformative i don't think i realized it at the time but um i spent you know i first of all i mean i grew up in you know new york when we were growing up there was this incredibly integrated place right Mm -hmm. i mean it was really unusual and you sort of thought well this is how the world works and of course you get out in the world and you realize how exceptional it was but you playing ball in the playgrounds there yeah Mm -hmm. yeah but I don't think I had never been exposed to the kind of profound poverty I saw on the south side of Atlanta. It was the second poorest census tract in the country, second only to Watts in LA. And uh, and I felt some shame. I mean, like, how is it I couldn't know about this? And, and also a sense of anger. And so I spent my time there. I worked with kids, I worked as a community organizer. I um, helped out with the welfare rights organization. I helped tenants uh, get some money that was due them from the housing authority. Uh, And it was, you know, it was my first realization, I think, I I think visceral realization how unlevel the playing field was. And uh, was this objectionable to your folks? Did they wonder what you were doing? No, not at all. And my, you know, my so my mom was a social worker, and she was kind of very politically active. She'd drag us off to anti-war rallies, and so no effect. She came down. I remember I was in Emmaus House in the seventies, and so uh, it was the tenth anniversary of Selma. And I remember she came. I, we were I was going over to. We were driving over to Selma, and she came and joined us. So, ah, yeah. She was an administrator at the uh, John Jay College of yeah, Criminal Justice. Yeah, she taught. She was a social yeah. worker. That was her, you know, um, so she— uh, So did, was she—I ask you this because it obviously relates to the work you've done right. later in your life, but was she into the sociology of crime and— no, not at all. I mean, she taught cop. I mean, when she was there, most of the people at John Jay wanted to be police officers or firefighters. Mm-hmm. So those are the people she saw. But no, she was there. I mean, I think her passion was these were people who, you know, for many of them, first generation students. And mm-hmm. so they were kind of, she was in this program called thematic studies that kind of helped them get their footing in college. Mm-hmm. You went uh, You went back to Wesleyan uh, and... When did you decide that you wanted to be a journalist, that you wanted to be a writer? You know, it was an accident. I graduated from school. I didn't know what I wanted to do. Ended up in a cattle ranch for a year. Yeah, I'm, I was <laughs> going to ask you about that. It sounds very city slickerish yeah, to me, yeah, a Jewish was, guy from New York. But it was a, a real. I just want to be clear. It was a real ranch, uh, and uh, I loved. I loved the outdoors, and I so I was there for ten months. And once we'd rounded up the cattle, I needed to do something. And there was an ad, a classified ad, in Mother Jones looking for an associate editor at a small alternative newspaper in Lansing, Michigan. And I applied and uh, went out and interviewed and got the job. It wasn't that I knew I wanted to do journalism, but I knew I wasn't cut out to be a community organizer. I wasn't cut out. Or a cattle rancher. Or a cattle rancher or, you know, doing electoral politics. And, uh, and I, you know, was there, I really very quickly realized, man, this is what I want to do. I love... What was that like, that early experience? What kinds of stories were you writing? You know, I was doing the kinds of stories in some ways I'm doing now, but not with the same deafness, I think. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I, what, I, what I loved about it is it, it, it pushed me, you know, I think left to my own devices, I would just hole up in my office in my house. And so it pushed me out into the world and forced me to 
engage with people. And then I had this luxury of being able to go and disappear for a week and craft these stories. And you know, it's interesting. You said you, you were kind of estranged from your dad. Um, but he was a writer. He wrote four novels. He was a journalist and so on. And here you kind of stumble into you you think you know my mother uh, named my sister and me because she said i wanted names that would look good in bylines my mother was a journalist and uh i uh and you know you want to think you have free will but then i ended up as a journalist you know i know i know i know i uh um uh for all the i wouldn't say i was estranged from them but for all the difficulties we had you're absolutely right i thought he the he clearly had this incredible impact on who I am today. Uh, I mean, the one thing I will say is our house was just lined with books. I mean, when he passed away five years ago, we, I think we had 2,500 books that we wow. had to get rid of. And so it was this kind of one constant in my life, this love for reading, this love for literature, love for story. Yeah. So um, so we, you were going to tell me the kind of stories you did in, in Lansing in your yeah, so infancy did, as yeah, a journalist. I mean, it's hard to remember. You know, I did a story about a, a, a boxing, you know, a, a small boxing center for where kids would go to box. I did, you know, some investigative pieces about a, a health insurance company. Um, I only lasted at the paper for eight months. It was the only place where I didn't get along with the editor. And so I left or got fired, depending who you ask. Um and uh, ended up staying, and and I stayed in Michigan and stayed freelance. In fact, worked with Michael Moore. Yes, he was yeah. in Flint. He had yeah. an alternative he paper did, yeah. there. Yeah, so he, Michael was publishing the Flint Voice, and uh, and so I'd go up there and I'd uh, crash at his house for a week, and we'd work on the paper. And I loved. I mean, Michael. I haven't seen Michael in years, but you know, Michael's this incredibly irreverent. <laughs> You know, guy, and I'm just so I'm, famously he's he's done quite well being irreverent. He has, and, and, and good as well. Right, and I'm much more measured, um, and so we kind of complemented each other. And um, but I loved, you know, and but it was I was there during this in, incredible moment in history when the kind of beginning of the deindustrialization mm-hmm. of this country, and you saw that especially in the auto industry, yeah. and it was it was just wreaking havoc on the lives of people in that city, um, and and. And it's also this city that's got this incredible history. I mean, it's the birthplace of General Motors, mm-hmm. of the American industrial might, and also the birthplace of the United Auto Workers. Yeah. Know? And uh, Yeah, yeah. Was, you know, and you think you flash forward years later and it became a symbol of neglect yeah. when the water mm-hmm. system right. uh, became a national issue. Was Michael Moore, did you uh, at the time say, this guy's going to become... This guy's going somewhere. Yeah, no, but I, he had a he. Michael had a presence. You know, there's no question about it. And um, he was, you know, he was unusual and and something special even back then. And and wearing a hat. Uh, yes, and wearing a hat. Yeah. <laughs> and then you decided to move to Chicago. Yeah. Why? Well, uh, partly out of frustration because I desperately wanted to work at a daily newspaper. So I applied to all these. I really wanted to work at the Detroit News, the Detroit Free Press, and uh, and because uh, I felt like I needed the newspaper experience and nobody would hire me because I didn't have any newspaper experience. It was yeah. just kind of catch-22. Yeah. Uh, and I applied to about a dozen papers and I kind of threw my hands up and I moved here. I was also doing a lot of work for NPR. And so they had a bureau here and I moved here. And... When I moved here, I, the last paper I applied to um, was the Wall Street Journal. And for whatever reason, they were willing to take a gamble on me. And um, uh, you you got on uh, this beat of uh, urban affairs mm-hmm. and social policy. 
Did you pitch yourself that way? No, I kind of slowly, is how I probably spend much in my life, is I kind of slowly weaseled my way into that. I, you know, I was hired to cover organized labor, which I'd written a lot about, and to cover these industrial companies like John Deere and what was then International Harvester. And I was terrible at business reporting. I mean, I really admired the people at the paper who were good at it. Um, and so I kind of on my own time began doing these stories that I really cared about. And ultimately, the paper... Um, saw the wisdom and just letting me wander off and do and do that full time. And uh, you, the the book There Are No Children Here uh, began as part of that work. Mm-hmm. Uh, you one of the places you wandered was into the Henry right. Horner homes right. here on the west side mm-hmm. of uh, Chicago. How did that uh, unfold. Right. So, you know, it's interesting. I actually, so in 1985, Chicago Magazine brought in this photographer, Steve James, Steve Shames, to do a, um, a photo series of children growing up in poverty in Chicago. And so he took photos all around the city. And the magazine asked me to come in afterwards and go write a, a paragraph or two about each of the kids. And so one of them was Lafayette. Um, Henry One Hunter. of the young men who became right. the subject of your and uh, and I went. Lafayette was I think he was maybe nine years old at the time, and I walked into those projects and talk about a sense of shame. I mean, those projects were just you know a mile and a half maybe from my office, which was then downtown, um, and I just thought to myself. How is it possible I could live in this city and not know? I mean, the conditions were just, they were mortifying. And I remember also that day that I, sp- I just spent an afternoon with him. He began to tell me about a young, uh, a, a teenager who had been shot and killed on the stairwell outside of his apartment building, and he didn't have any affect. affect yeah. yeah, and so I, to be honest, I don't know that I fully believed him, and he must have uh, sensed that because I visibly remember him pulling me by my arm and taking me out to the stairwell to show me the bloodstains on the steps. And I was haunted by that afternoon. And my initial inclination was I actually wanted to go back. I began thinking about the kids I'd spent time with in Atlanta. And it had been 10 years and thought maybe I'd go back and write about them. And it wasn't logistically possible. And so I ultimately went initially and spent that summer with Lafayette to write about a summer living in the projects. And uh, you became first. First of all, just to uh, one of the things that struck me was you. You obviously were conspicuous, right? Here, yeah. you're 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 not an African American young man, uh, and uh, somewhere I read that, uh, and this tells you about the sort of the 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 tenor of things in these communities this a young man saw you coming and sort of spread eagled against a right, wall right. because he just assumed that you were a a, a police officer because right. it was the only whites that spent any time in that community were the cops and the teachers but the teachers would drive into the parking lot and go into the school building so i that's the thing i had to fight initially was this notion that i was a plainclothes cop mm-hmm. in the community and did you feel how did you feel in the community, I mean, other than that, you obviously weren't, they, you know, you were alien to the community. Right. Um, but did you feel threatened? Did you feel unsafe? No, you know, it's interesting. Um, one of the things, so I, I go into this community. I met Lafayette, and I go with it back there two years later, and I'd lost touch with Lafayette in that time. And so, you know, I'm 
smart enough, I think, uh, uh, to know that I can't just walk into a community like that and just start knocking on doors. And so I went to the Boys and Girls Club. It was then actually just the Boys Club that had some respect and dignity and introduced myself to the people there. And they let me hang out there. So I spent three weeks just coming there and shooting pool and playing basketball with the kids, just getting to know people. And Major Adams, who ran the club, um, took me around and introduced me to people. And unbeknownst to me, one of the things he was doing was introducing me to all the gang leaders and telling them that I was okay. Uh-huh. Um, and um, to be honest, people kept an eye out for me. Um, I don't. I never felt threatened by anybody there. And the story I always tell is the irony is that the only time I felt threatened working on that book was in when I was at a high school. Um, and I had walked in. I was trying to uh, talk to some teachers, and I went into the bathroom downstairs and was at the urinal and realized at that point I would walked in on the drug deal that was taking place through the window. And I got really – I just realized I was in the wrong place at the wrong time and got really anxious. And I, the guys, I think, were just as anxious. They bro- broke into an old Temptations rendition. and uh, But that was the only time where I just felt like I shouldn't – this isn't a place where I want to be at the moment. Uh, and what, what caused you to want to write – the book. Uh, you hadn't written a book before. Right. When did you realize this is a story that is a book, not just a yeah. magazine? Um, so, you know, it's interesting. After the story came out in the journal, I got all this attention, probably more than anything else I've written for a newspaper or a magazine. Um, and partly it had to do with the fact that it was the Wall Street Journal. And it's one of the things I loved about working there as I reached this. Exposed people who should know about this right. and don't. Yeah, I mean, he was speaking to the powers that be, you know, yeah. all these. Um, and uh, and so I felt like I'd said everything I needed and wanted to say. Um, and I got calls from editors and agents. And there was this agent, David Black, who's my agent today, who um, convinced me that there was more to write here and also convinced me that writing a book, there it would be around for a long time. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, what I now, th- I didn't think about this then because I was too naive, but I do feel like one of the m- questions one should ask themselves before writing a book is this, 10 years from now, is this book going to feel as resonant then as it does now? Um, and so I ended up spending, you know, next year and a half um, every day with these two boys in the projects. And really, yeah, became sort of in, in, in ingrained in the family and ingrained yeah. in the community. Um, and tell me about how that relationship uh, developed, because it's a relationship that uh, transcended just the time you were working on the book. I mean, right. it became a, a lifetime relationship. Right, right. Well, you know, with kids, so Lafayette and Farrow at that point were 12 and 9 years old. Lafayette was the older boy, Farrow the younger. And I remember early on, I mean, you know, I, I was out there. I had my notebook out all the time. I just wanted to remind him while I was there. But they didn't really, I mean, they were so young. They didn't know what I was doing. Um, I didn't know what I was doing either in <laughs> some ways. But, but I always remember that the thing, the question they had for me was, Am I still going to stay around after the book came out? It was a constant question. And I promised them that I wasn't going anywhere. Um, and that was really important. Um, and I feel really strongly about this. I, You know, I, one of the things I love about my work is many of the people, not everybody, but many of the people I write about become a part of my life. You know, and I feel like my life is so much richer for it, as is my family's. And... You know, as you point out, and you know, with in the wake of their own children here, Lafayette and Pharaoh and others I wrote about are still friends. It's been you know some almost tw- over twenty five years now. Yeah, um, 
And we, we should note the book was um, an extraordinary uh, bestseller and really brought these issues to the fore. Oprah made right. a movie. Right. Uh, My claim to fame in the community was that. That uh, Oprah. Uh, yeah. yeah. That must have been uh, mind-boggling when, you know, you this story that you, you know, you wrote for the Wall Street Journal, you found this story, and now it's internationally known. Right. Yeah. I mean, writing that book has been just incredibly rewarding, and I probably got spoiled early on in some ways. Um and uh, but uh, uh, um, it's allowed me to do what I do now. It's allowed me to write about the things that are important to me, and that's I feel really fortunate. You left for. the journal and you just became a writer and right, I, right. So I cobbled together this life, and a writer's life is not an easy one, you know. Yeah. Even uh, when you have success, and so you know, I I teach at Northwestern, I give speeches, and I write. I mean, that's for me really what I want to be doing. So tell me about uh, uh, Lafayette and Pharaoh, and take us beyond right, the book. Right. So I don't want to share. I don't want to tell too much, only because when I was working on the book, it was clear that I was there to write about their lives publicly. And so, but what I can say, and because I write about this in my current book, you know, yes. Pharaoh, <clears throat> after the book came out, he was really he loved school, and so. Um, at one point, um, he asked if he could come. I was living on the north side. I was single and asked if he could come stay with me for a week or two because there was a lot of traffic in and out of his mother's apartment, and he just needed some place of, of solace and a place where he could really study. And that week or two turned into six years. You know, He was 12 years old, um, and it wasn't like at some point I said, okay, this is permanent. It just sort of happened, and... Uh, and, you know, in that subsequent year, I got married, and my wife, Maria, bless her heart, you know, was open to the idea of having Pharaoh with us. And so he stayed with us until he graduated from, from high school. And he had his own challenges. Yeah, he did. I mean, I think, you know, naively, I thought this is offering this kind of place of respite and and, and peacefulness will be great for him. But what I didn't reckon with and uh, is, you know, he was in the throes of adolescence, trying to, there's any adolescent trying to figure out who he is. And here he is living with these two white people who are unrelated to him. And he was trying to figure out who he, where he belonged. And I don't mean physically, but just sort of spiritually mm -hmm. where he belonged. And, uh, um, and so there were some in his family and some friends who were pulling at him. And I think that was really hard for him, uh, trying to sort of figure out who he was. And, um, you know, one of the things, I, 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 I want to talk about a few of your other projects, mm -hmm. and then I want to talk about the book that sure. you've, mm -hmm. you've just written, which to me was as, in certain ways, as impactful and, and uh, jarring and moving as, as your first book. Um, but the commonality between them is what the reality of day-to-day -day life in these communities mm. is. Mm. And um, you can't help but read these books, your books, and not ask yourself, how does every child in these communities not have P PTSD? Uh, and how does this affect their, their, their lives moving forward, even if they survive the violence right. yeah. of the community? 
Right. No, I think you're right. I think that that's sort of what nobody speaks of. It was interesting. I was just, uh, was it a few weeks ago when we celebrated or celebrated Mark, the one-year anniversary of the Parkland shooting? And, you know, all the stories were about sort of how these students were managing to move on. I mean, really important stories about how you move on with carrying that weight uh, along with you and carrying the burden of, of what you've witnessed and what you've lost. We don't ask those questions about kids growing up in the south side or west side of Chicago. Um, and that, for me, is is where we one, – one place we really miss. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I think about your life and the dialogue you had with your father mm-hmm. who experienced this right. horror. Right. But he had the ability to uh, to sort of grapple with that and the – Right, and but it took him a long time. It did, and I always, um, I'm, I think a lot about you know, uh, you know, Tim O'Brien's the things they carried, and towards the end of the book, there's this line in the book, you know, this much is this much I know to be true, stories can save us, and it saved my dad. That's sort of you know that capacity to be able to make sense of this what seemed to lack any mm-hmm. sense. Yeah, but what about these kids? Well, that's the problem, right? And so, uh, and in fact, one of the things that's really striking is not only are they not encouraged to talk about what they've experienced, but they're actually discouraged from it because their parents are fearful that if they do, they'll somehow be held culpable for what they've witnessed and what they've experienced. And so people keep it inside, and it leads to this um, utter sense of, of loneliness. Yeah. I want to uh, let's let's um, park this conversation for uh, and come right. back to it when we get to the book because right. I'm really interested in in how we get out of this mm-hmm. uh, hell right. that we we're in in some of our communities mm-hmm. and how do we help mm-hmm. people save right. themselves you mm-hmm. know um, the you wrote another book called The Other Side of the River that I particularly appreciated because I have a place uh, near these towns mm-hmm. of uh, St. Joe and Bettina mm-hmm. Harbor. Um, and uh, for those who don't know, uh, St. Joe, Joseph, Michigan is kind of your quintessential Midwestern, you know, middle class. Beautiful community. It is. Yeah. yeah. yeah right on the lake. And across and the predominantly r- white. Predominantly yeah, white. Yeah, yeah. And across the river is Benton Harbor, almost entirely African-American and incredibly impoverished. Right. Just right. divided by one right. it's river. A, it's America there personified. It's, yeah. So uh, tell me how you came to, to do that book. It's it centered around uh, a murder right. and a body that floated down the river from one town to the, the right. other. Right. So, you know, coming out of writing There Are No Children Here, I realized, looking back on it, people have asked me if I have any things that I regret about not I don't know why people always ask this of writers. What do you wish you had included in your book? Or and uh, 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 let me scratch that off my <laughs> list. Um, but the thing that was I realized is I never really in any kind of really forthright way tackled with the issue of race, and there are no children here. And so I wanted to try to figure out a way to write about it. And one of the tough things about writing about race in this country, not so much in this moment, but certainly in the past 20 years, has been the absence of any connection, of any conversation. And how do you write about that absence? And so I learned about this story, um, the death of a 16-year-old boy, Eric McGinnis, uh, African-American kid who uh, lived in Benton Harbor and unusually had some, actually some white friends in St. Joe. Um, 
And he was over in St. Joe one night and apparently was breaking into a car and rummaging through the glove compartment. The car owner caught him there and the chase ensued away from the river. And they ran by a deputy sheriff uh, who happened to be having dinner and Eric disappeared. And a few days later, his body was found floating in the river that separates these two towns. And what so intrigued me is how these two communities came to the death of this boy from such extraordinarily different angles, having everything to do with race. I mean, everybody in St. Joe is convinced Eric, uh, knowing that the police were out looking for him, tried to swim the river to get home and accidentally drowned. And everybody in Benton Harbor, to this day, if you were to go up there, they would tell you this, that Eric had died as a result of foul play, most likely because he had been dating a white girl, which in fact he had. And so it was this kind of Rashomon of race about how race so affects the way we perceive the world. And this was right on the heels, you remember the Rodney King beating that was caught on video in, uh, outside LA. Yes. And people came to that video and they saw what their own personal experiences told them. Yeah. Um, you say not so much today, uh, race is front and center in in ways that it wasn't in the past. Right. Um, how has that changed things? Well, I think what's going on now is both really, dis- on the one hand, really dispiriting, but maybe an opportunity. And I say dispiriting because the kind of racism we see um, coming from people in positions of power is just uh, it's remarkable. I you know I just I'm I it's hard for me to fathom um, that this is going on in 2019. Um, but on the other hand, maybe it's a reckoning. Maybe it's a time where we'll sort of look at ourselves as a nation and realize how far we still have to go. Um, because the truth of the matter is we don't talk about race. I mean, for me, the moment when I think of Chicago, when they tore down all the public housing high-rises, you know, the one thing nobody talked about was thinking that this is an opportunity to think about re- of integrating the city by race. Nobody talked about it. Right. Um, and uh, so maybe the... Now, who knows? I, I, but it is this remarkable moment in time. I, I think, just, and, and really distressing. I think these... Uh I think the reality is that the wounds of race have never left us. And what's changed is people who are more overtly willing to exploit race for their own political purposes. We saw it in the past, in the 60s, George Mm -hmm. Wallace Mm -hmm. and so on. And then there was a kind of politeness that settled in. So even those efforts to exploit these divisions were done somewhat more subtly. Now it's very blatant. Right. And, you know, and I don't want (coughs) to divert the conversation, but Trump has given them permission to do that. And that's, Um, you wrote another book called Never a City So Real, a series of profiles about people uh, in Chicago. My happy book, my wife calls it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and that was 15 years ago. So that was it. Your one flirtation with <laughs> right. happiness, uh, but also a great book, um, wrote, including writing about really colorful characters like Ed Sadlowski, yeah. who was a great sort of renegade labor leader, yeah. progressive labor leader. Oh, man, I wish he was still around. Uh, you know, he passed away this past year, but he he saw this all coming. He, His daughter is an alderman now. Yes, she is. In yeah, the city. Yeah. It shows you how much Chicago has changed because yeah. 
he was part of the progressive group that was fighting, you know, the old machine right. down there, uh, Ed Verdoliak and the old machine. Pardon everybody in the world who's listening to this who had, knows nothing about Chicago politics. And um, and now Sadlowski's daughter is sitting in the chair that was once the seat of power in that. There's some justice out there. <laughs> um, you you were involved in a in a documentary uh, project called The Interrupters um, in 2011 that really focused on the issue of gun violence. Mm. And that issue has, I mean, it was clearly an issue uh, when you wrote your first book. Right. But it's gotten worse. Well, that's the odd thing. It hasn't gotten worse. It actually was, when my book came out in 1991, <coughs> There were 950 homicides in Chicago, tw- almost twice what it is today. Um, but Maybe it f- it's just that we're more aware. Well, it feels – I tell you what I think has changed. It feels as intense, if not more so now, than yeah. it did then. And I think part of it has to do with the fact that the city tore down all the public housing high-rises because talk about out of sight, out of mind. I mean mm-hmm. that's where most of the violence occurred and nobody was paying any attention to it. Um, but, yes, yeah, so my f- longtime friend and uh, filmmaker Steve James and I w- – produced the interrupters and it's a you know we spent a year with these three individuals who work for an organization that the notion is is these are people formerly of the street who have some uh cachet uh, some respect and they go out and interrupt disputes before they turn into something more as ceasefire was the name of the uh uh the organization and um talk about what what level of success they achieve you know it's hard to tell to be honest i mean they um i mean i will tell you that the three people we spent with in the film i mean their work was just remarkable uh and it was clear that they on an individual basis they made a real difference uh, you know the question for a program like that is how can you scale it and and make it work and ultimately how their numbers are still unclear as to how effective it is but i can just tell you from the ground level it felt it felt very real, and it felt. I mean, I, and you capture that in the film. Yeah, and I felt these they were making a difference. Uh, so you know, I think the crest, the question you raise is the one that uh, that should be the focus of our discussions when we talk about this issue of crime and violence, um, which is obviously bigger than a policing issue. Right. It's a, yeah. There's so many right. dimensions to it, but there are all these ideas. And how do you scale them up? Right. And you know where? How where do the how do you bring resources to bear? And it seems to me we always limit ourselves in the discussion about what we should do because everybody says, well, you know, we can't. There's no money. Mm. We can't. And my thing is, let's think about what would actually make a difference and figure out how we do it. Right. No, I agree. I mean, I think that for me, one of the things that's most sobering is in some ways. So I wrote There Are No Children Here in 1991 and how little things have changed. Um, I always um, I always think of this moment when I was um, – when we at one point when we were taking the film around to screen, I brought it down to Danville Prison, this medium security prison in Illinois. It's the only screening I've done where they had to keep the lights on while we screened. It was a, <laughs> and we had about 100 men there. And I remember right afterwards we did a time for a Q&A and the first two guys who got up – had been in prison 23 years and 19 years respectively. And the reason I know that is because they got up and told me that. And in the context that they both, the, both these men were from Englewood, which is one of the communities featured mm-hmm. in the film. And they were near tears because they couldn't believe how much worse it looked 
in the film than when they had gone in two decades earlier. You know, one of the things that you hear all the time is that uh, in their um, eagerness to um, subdue this gang activity, a lot of the gang leaders, major gang leaders, were imprisoned, right. prosecuted and imprisoned. And the problem actually metastasized because there was no one to actually discipline these organizations, which which were sort of quasi-business organizations. Right, right, right. Is that is that? Yeah, no. It's the unintentional consequence of public policy, right? You think you're doing the right thing, which was let's cut the head off of the snake, let's dismantle these gangs, which you know on the surface makes sense. These were very hierarchical organizations, which, as you point out, were organized around this really robust drug trade, and so they cut the head off, and then. In the subsequent years, they just begin to splinter. And so now, you know, the police estimate there are anywhere between 600 to 800 different factions, crews, cliques, whatever you want to call them, that are block to block, organized not around any business, but just out of, and so they get into disputes that they sometimes can't even remember what they're about with the gang adjacent to them or or gang in another neighborhood. Um, and so it's made it in some ways um, the situation even worse. And I think it's one of the reasons why the violence feels more intense now because it feels more random. The, um, the question that I get more than any other when I'm talking to people around the country about this is why is Chicago particularly subject right. to this you know, every there are gangs everywhere, but Chicago seems to be more subject to it. Yeah, but you know, Chicago. I mean, things are bad in Chicago, but we're not even in the top ten worst murder rates in the in the country. But the gang issue, particularly the gang issue. But the gang issue was really bad in L.A. It's bad elsewhere. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. Um, the thing that I can't quite figure out is why Chicago, over the years, has been this kind of epicenter for all these really horrific murders of and by children. You know, you go back to the 1990s, uh, Eric Morse, who was dropped from the high-rise in Ida B. Wells, Yummy Sandifer, uh, uh, Ryan Harris, uh, Darian Albert, Hadia Pendleton, these moments in time when the city just bows its head um, in sorrow and sense of shame, and all these national, international reporters come here. and um, But... I, that's the thing that I can't understand is why why Chicago? Mm -hmm. What's uh, and I don't have an answer for that. You uh, you wrote this book that is uh, just published, An American Summer: Love and Death in Chicago, and uh, which I I told you this. This is not, I'm not but I, I I mean I loved it. Oh, I mean I hate I I hated it in some ways because of the story is so. Uh, hard in, in places, and you're in tears reading it. But it was so well done. Uh, but the thing that struck me at the beginning, and you addressed this, was wait a second, this is about the summer of 2013. It's like 2019. Right. You know, what happened? <laughs> And my, my editor asked me the same question. So, <laughs> you know, I started this book. One of the things that attracted me to writing this selfishly was I thought, well, this will be a reasonably quick book to write. I spend this summer, I report out for another six months, and I sit down and write. And, of course, what I didn't realize, and it's just being naive, is that, you know, I landed on these stories. And, you know, I couldn't help but stay with these some of these stories as they unfurled over time. And as they did, they came to reveal so much more about the people in them. Uh, and so what I thought was going to be a year, year and a half project turned into 
five years. Um, and it's not just, I mean, what what is, it's a series of vignettes, and it's a series of vignettes about a whole range of people who are impacted by violence in the city, not just the victims, uh, but but the families, the, the, the teachers who are trying to and, intervene. And perpetrators. And the, right, per, and right, the perpetrators. Right, right. Yeah. And, and so tell me what your concept was going in. So I just had this notion that I wanted, I knew I wanted to write, I knew right off the bat I didn't want to deal with public policy um, uh, because in part because it changes from year to year and I felt like whatever I wrote would be, we'd have moved on to something, some other notion about what works and doesn't work. And and uh, what I really wanted to do was to write this really intimate book about how the violence gets in your bones, what it does to shape one's sense of the world and sense of themselves. And so what I was looking for were stories that in some measure knocked me off balance, surprised me, um, uh, left me asking questions. Uh, and so I just, you know, there were a couple of stories I knew that I wanted to write about before the summer that I could land in that summer. And then I spent my time looking for all these stories. Uh, and how'd you find them? You know, it varied. So um, I, you know, I've spent a lot of time in these communities. So I went back to people I knew. I um, hung out at places like County Hospital. I embedded with a homicide unit on the south side. I uh, spoke to people I met working on the interrupters, and there are no children here. Um looking for stories. And some of them I kind of just stumbled into. Um, one of the stories, uh, you know, which involves a young woman who is called Ashar in a book. It's not her real name, but it's a story. She She's uh, brought up by a single mom, and she's just kind of, her father's left the family, and she's just constantly disappointed by all the men in her lives. And she ends up wanting to get as far away from the city as she yes. can and goes yeah. away to college yeah. and settles in Philadelphia. But the beauty of this story is that it turns out, well, the beauty and the tragedy is that her best friend from childhood is involved in a murder, and they begin a correspondence when he's in the county jail, and these are these beautiful, graceful, eloquent, moving letters between the two of them. But the way I found her was that I knew, I'd heard about these two brothers, one who was been in trouble and one who was a postal worker, you know, kind of the good brother and the bad brother. And I thought about writing about them. And when I met Aries, the postal worker, he calls up his childhood friend, Shara, and says, you know, I got this reporter who wants to talk to me. And she says, who's the reporter? And he goes, Alex Kotlowitz. Well, it turns out that Ashara years earlier, had called me out of the blue. She had read There Are No Children Here. I don't remember this, but she does clearly. And just wanted some guidance, you know, just wanted yeah. some kind of mentorship. And so, and that's how I met. And so when I met her, I thought, this is her story. Yeah, that that story ends in a sort of bittersweet way right. because she ends up being disappointed again right. by her friend. Right. Uh, but... You know, I read these stories, and uh, as I said, I, I was moved to tears in places, and I felt like you're such a gifted writer that you draw us into these stories, and you come to know these characters, and you feel like wrapping your arms around these kids mm-hmm. uh, and trying to protect them. And I can only imagine what it was like, what it is like uh, for you, because you live these stories with them. Right. I mean, you're translating them to us, but you're there, and you, you're close enough to wrap them up, those who survived. Right. Um, 
how 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 hard is that? You said your wife jokes that that was your happy book, your <laughs> your Chicago book, fifteen years yeah. ago. Uh, how how does it impact on you to live yeah. in this in this world? Yeah, I mean, and not just when you're there, but when you're sitting in your right. in your uh, house and writing this yeah. this material. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I almost hesitate to talk about this in some ways because I know whatever I went through doesn't pales in comparison to what the people I wrote about went yeah. through. But I will say, this was a really difficult book to write um, emotionally, and I and I th- there was a moment in time. Uh, when I was it had begun writing, um, that I kind of had lost. Um, I never had this experience before. I lost all sense of joy. I couldn't even when I tried to. I couldn't smile, and I was in a real not in a, not in a good place. I was just paralyzed. I couldn't write. Um, I mean, I was able to pull out of it, and to be honest, part of it, you know, I, I went into therapy. But there's no question that I think what was taking place, and I think I'm aware of it now, I don't know if I was aware of it then, was this kind of secondary trauma. Um, and then, of course, I had this great catharsis, which is I could sit down and tell these stories. Much um, like your dad. Right, much like my dad, right. Yeah. Well, it. Um, uh, the, the question, I mean, the f- one thing you do is that you don't judge. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I know you've said or you've written is that you've learned over time not to be uh, as judgmental. This was true of uh, Lafayette and Pharaoh's mom. Right. That you got angry at her for being ne- what you felt was neglectful, and uh, and you came around mm-hmm. because of right. advice from some poet from Harvard right. and yeah. some writers, but to become to 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 be more empathetic. Right. right. Um, so that's these. These these characters um, are not good or bad. Even the even the perpetrators, uh, you know, it, it's interesting because um, they they did they took lives, they maimed people, and so on. But they uh, but they come across as whole people. Right. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, look. People are complicated, and the truth of the matter is there's very little good and evil in the world. It exists, but most people fall somewhere in that spectrum. And so the challenge, I think, if you're going to write about somebody is to be able to capture them fully and richly and honestly. And the truth of the matter is, in the end, most of the people, not everybody, but most of the people I write about, on some level I'm writing about them because I admire who they are or how how they've managed given their circumstance. Um, and so I try to be absolutely honest to what I see and what I hear, knowing that that, that admiration will, will find its way through all that. And, and I also think readers are pretty savvy. They know when you're pulling punches, and so it's really important to be honest. But I think you're right. This notion of empathy is kind of, it's the centripetal force of storytelling. It's what, you know, and it's also the centripetal force of community. In fact, I always remember, I tell this story a lot, that in those, when Obama was running in 2008, he used to give these stump speeches about the empathy gap. I think he saw people were eyes glazing over and so he stopped talking about it. But what he was getting at is it's what connects us, it's what holds together community. I actually think there's going to be a market for that Mm -hmm. again uh, in this next Mm -hmm. election, you know, because there is such a stark Mm -hmm. uh, contrast out there. I mean, whatever you think about Donald Trump, he fundamentally uh, preaches a gospel of self-interest, right. 
mm-hmm. it is antithetical to the notion of empathy. And generally, people look for the opposite of what they mm-hmm. have. So I think the ability to connect is, is going to be important. But you see, you shouldn't kind of divert me into these discussions <laughs> because now you're getting me into my pol- politics, uh, my politics mode. Right. So did you... The, the thing that I... These people, you come away from feeling much more understanding about what they're going through, what they're trying to do. Uh, sometimes they fail in doing it. Uh, even the, peop- the people who are trying to help, the people who are involved, and so on. Uh, what about hope? I mean, do you have hope? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's funny. My my editor a number of years ago, this is before I started working this book, she just said, why do you write on all these dark subjects? And I laugh because I don't think of that. I know, I, I, I'm not being... Man, you just said that you, I, you, I know, you went not, through trauma I understand. I'm not, I don't want to be disingenuous here. It's not that I don't... I recognize the sort of grimness of the landscape. But for me, you know, the stories that in this book are all people who have somehow emerged and are standing, you know, standing in this world that's slumping around them. And some of them are moving forward heroically. Yeah. You know, they're pushing back. Um, and so that's the hope that people somehow manage through all this and try to make sense of what they've experienced. And a number of the people in the book, you know, are actually working to try to undo some of the damage they did when they were younger. So let that gets back to the question that I raised before, which is what, what, what can a community do a community at large, not just uh, writ large, not just the communities that are deeply affected. Right. Um, what can the community do to help support those people who are who are trying to fight their way through? Right. So, I mean, first of all, there are these wonderful programs. There are programs out there that I think are working in, in small measure. One of them, for example, Eddie Bocanegra, who's in the book, yes. you know, who's this remarkable human being. I just, uh, I'm in awe of him, who, you know, at the age of 18, took somebody's life, spent 12 years in prison. And his story in the book is about somebody trying to find a way to forgive himself for what he did. But he now runs this program at uh, Heartland Alliance, this large social service agency in Chicago, um, in which they work trying to get young people jobs, which is, you know, nothing new about that. But he requires them to undergo cognitive behavioral therapy, these group therapy Mm -hmm. sessions, where they sit around and talk about their experiences and trying to, what it's trying to do, one, is make people feel less alone. Because it's really clear to me, it's one of the things that, one of the consequences of the violence is this kind of how it disconnects people from each other um, and trying to get them to more self-aware about what they're experiencing, why it is they're so easy to anger, why it is they self-medicate, you know, why why it is they have trouble sleeping, um, all the things that you can imagine soldiers must experience in returning mm-hmm. from combat. Yes. Um, and so programs like that are programs that we need to find ways to support. And then the other part, which is goes back to our early conversation, is, look, we need to find ways to rebuild these communities. Um, you know, I think cities across the country are grappling with this growing economic divide. And you see cities like San Francisco, New York, and Seattle that have become prohibitive for anybody who's not privileged and so we we've seen a, a big out migration of, of right. poor african americans close to 200,000 in the past 10 years yeah it's remarkable and it's you know um and and we need to find a way to undo that i mean one of the things i love about 
this city, one of the things I loved about growing up in New York was the kind of messy vitalities, you know, mm-hmm. the diversity. And it, it, we can't lose that. It's what this country is about. Um, and uh, it's also the great paradox of this grand experiment is that we like to think we're all in this together, and yet we lead such disconnected lives. Yeah. Um, what is your... Where do you go from here? Are you, are you going to continue on this? Uh, I don't mean on your book tour. I'm right. talking about <laughs> with your with your writing and right. your yeah. Career. So I, I I think I've I think I've said what I want to say about the violence and about the what's happening to our cities. I've now what I. You know, for me, I think these are these are really distressing times that we live in, really unsettling times. And um, and um, I don't. What I find for me that's disorienting is I don't fully recognize my country anymore. And so, I want to find a way to write about uh, uh, and remind me what I love about this place. And that's what I'm trying to figure out now. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but I think it's hard as a writer to try to weigh in at this moment um, because uh, we, we these are really troubling times. Yeah. One thing I would say, though, is the ability to honestly depict people and give them dimensionality and express some empathy and uh, is deeply needed now mm-hmm. because we have so siloed ourselves that and it's easy to dehumanize people in your own consciousness because you don't have contact with them. You don't, and somehow rekindling a national dialogue is so important right now. Yeah, I mean, I've been. I don't want to talk about what I'm working on at the moment, but I've been spending some time in a, a small town in Missouri, yeah. a big Trump country, yes. and just as an effort to try to get to know these people who you know, are for the most part decent yeah. human beings. Yes. And so... Uh, uh, this is I, the thing that bothered me um, after the election of Trump. I, I have a place in rural Michigan, uh, not far from the towns about which right. you wrote. And um, I have a lot of neighbors who had Trump signs in the yard, some of whom had voted for Barack Obama. Mm-hmm. And I know them as neighbors, not as caricatures. And... Uh, and and then I'd come back to Chicago, and basically the attitude was these people are all toothless, ignorant right. racists. Right. And to be sure, there were there there were some caricatures mm-hmm. on the other side mm-hmm. as well. But if we if that's what our knowledge, if that's what our senses of people, uh, then it's going to be a lot harder to uh, to solve these problems. Yeah, it's going to be impossible. Yeah. I mean, that's talk about lack of empathy, right? That's precisely what's going on. Is just sort of maintaining these tropes and caricatures. Uh, and well, you have the ability to penetrate them, and an extraordinary gift. And I, I, we've known each other for a long time, and reading this book, which I think I, I urge everyone uh, to read, uh, reminded me again of what prodigious gifts you, you have. So I, I'm thrilled to sit down with you, and, uh, and I, I look forward to uh, everything that you do. Well, David, thanks so much, man. This has been such a pleasure. Alex Kotlowitz, good to be with you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit axefilespodcast.com and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. For more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, 
visit politics.uchicago.edu. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.